Welcome to Dire Trip, where we deep dive into all sorts of spooky, horrific, or just plain weird crimes, lawsuits, and strange happenings all over the world. Without further ado, let's get into today's story. A deranged man, after a lifetime of crime and untreated mental illness, is set free time and time again, only to commit more and more crimes, until it all culminated into the worst crime spree in the entire state of Tennessee in over 20 years. This summer, HelloFresh is here to take the work out of eating well. It's easier to reach your diet goals with calorie-smart and protein-smart lunch and dinner options, plus new vegan recipes too if you're interested. Not only is HelloFresh more convenient than grocery shopping, but it's also cheaper too. It's about 25% less expensive than getting takeout. The HelloFresh market even has all sorts of new snacks, meals, and add-ons for your weekly orders, like their s'mores bundle for kids. So this summer, spend less time meal planning and prepping with HelloFresh's pre-proportioned ingredients that make it easy to get the cooking done quick. Speaking of quick, for today's video I decided to try out the sweet chili pork and cabbage stir-fry. The directions for this one were extremely simple and the whole thing took only a few minutes to make. Not to mention it came out tasting pretty great. Definitely worth a try. So go to HelloFresh.com and use my code DIRETRIP16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Once again, go to HelloFresh.com and use code DIRETRIP16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. And now, onto the content. Over the last 20 years or so, there have been several crimes in the state of Tennessee in which four or more people were killed. The worst case in recent memory was a case back in 1997 when seven people were killed. That was only the worst case until recently, however. The subject of our video today is a man named Michael Cummins. Michael was a troubled man, to say the least, with a very checkered past. He had a criminal record spanning years and a thoroughly court-documented history of mental illness. Michael Cummins was born in September of 1993 to David and Clara Cummins. Neither of his parents worked, living off of social services almost entirely in what is basically a slum on the edge of Westmoreland, Tennessee, an already economically depressed area. Michael never really socialized much beyond his family. If they went out, he would stay at home. He was never well-behaved, even in early childhood. He constantly battled with untreated mental illness and never went on to succeed in school. He quit school pretty early on and never did start working, instead turning to petty crime. Throughout the rest of his life, he would go on to be involved in so much crime that he truly never had enough time to even rehabilitate. It was one thing after another. Michael's run-ins with the law started all the way back in 2012. This was when he was convicted on a simple drug possession charge. He also got a court order to stay away from his 17-year-old pregnant ex-girlfriend that he couldn't leave alone. And true to himself, he didn't leave her alone. He violated the protective order she had against him. At this point, his first mental health evaluation was ordered. Having both the possession charge and an attempted assault charge, he was ordered to spend 150 days in jail. In August of 2013, Michael decided to really bother his family when he showed up at his aunt's home and trashed the place. His aunt called the police, saying that he was destroying the house and throwing things at her. This was, according to the aunt, because she rightfully accused him of stealing some money from her. Michael said that he then blacked out in sheer anger and started going ape on her living room. Michael was charged with domestic assault. Things got quiet until a few years later, when Michael was charged with domestic assault and robbery after he went over to his mom's place, a place where he wasn't supposed to be for one reason or another. 
Upon showing up, he begged her for some money. When he didn't get any, he stole her purse and medication. In the process, he grabbed his grandma by the arm, lifted her up, and yanked her around by the hair. For this, he went on to plead guilty to a charge of domestic assault and was ordered to attend domestic violence classes. He was also ordered to have no more contact with his grandmother. Around that same time, things got a little weird when Michael decided to hop into a neighbor's house and steal a turkey. He was caught red-handed on that neighbor's game camera. When the judge asked him why he stole a turkey, he responded, ate it. He pleaded guilty to this charge as well, being placed on probation and ordered to undergo yet another mental health evaluation. In September of 2017, Michael's crimes would hit their then-peak when he set his neighbor's house on fire and assaulted her. It all started when the woman started smelling smoke inside her house, bringing her to notice a small fire. When she started trying to put it out, Michael showed up, pushed her to the ground, and started pulling her hair. He was armed with a revolver, so it seemed like things were about to get much worse. He instead ran off, though, going directly to his own house, which was next door. The police showed up shortly after and began their investigation. They found that the insulation under the home had been torn up and flammable materials, including cigarettes, coupons, and a diaper, had been shoved inside, being lit. For this, he was charged with attempted aggravated arson and aggravated assault and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Upon being sentenced, he told the sheriff's office directly, If I get out of jail, I'll go there and do it again. When I get out, I'll finish the job. Despite this, he was only in jail for about a year and a half in total, getting out on probation after a judge decided to let him out. By this point, Michael had personally pleaded guilty to a myriad of crimes, including domestic assault, evading arrest, theft, and violations of probation, to name a few. Michael's ex-girlfriend, the previously 17-year-old girl that he made unwanted contact with a few years prior, spoke out in a Facebook post about why he was no longer involved with her or their daughter's life any longer, saying, It's not a secret he's dangerous. He needs to be stopped. Enough is enough already before he ends up getting somebody killed. This takes us to April 17th of 2019, around 7.18 p.m. The local police department got a call about a possible grass fire out in the woods just outside of Westmoreland. The fire department arrived, finding what they believed to be a small pile of someone's belongings burning down in a valley that they had a little bit of trouble getting down into. Once the fire was out, they started combing through the charred belongings, trying to find some sort of way to find out who they belonged to. A few hours later, the police found who probably owned these things. The problem was, this man no longer had a head. They had come across the body of James Fox Dunn Jr., a man from Nashville outside of his home of 20 years. His head was found later, about 25 yards away. The police believed that he had been there in that state for at least a few days. He had been reporting missing just a few days prior. The fire actually wasn't believed to be a part of his death, with the police believing that the fire most likely started by chance when a pile of combustible material was left out. Needless to say, the murder case on their hands took precedent over the small bushfire. An autopsy showed that James had died from blunt force trauma to the head. While investigating, the police noticed that a rifle and some other items had been stolen from his home. For now, in order to avoid starting a panic, the police kept their investigation relatively quiet and mainly secret. However, the next chain of events would lead them to regret that decision. The next sequence is fuzzy, but we know the general details. Michael Cummins, having killed James Dunn Jr. and stolen his rifle, headed out to his own parents' home on Charles Brown Road. 
There, he came across his mother, 44-year-old Clara, his father, 51-year-old David, and his uncle, who happened to be there at the time, Charles Edward Wholesale, age 45. His grandmother, Mary Sue Wholesale, was there as well. Also in the home was his uncle's girlfriend, Rachel McLaughlin P., and her family, including her 64-year-old mother, Marcia Nuckles, and her 12-year-old daughter, Sapphire. Michael was armed with a pistol and likely the previously stolen rifle, along with a bat and some sort of sharp object. He slaughtered everyone in the home, all of them dying from blunt force trauma injuries to the head from either the guns or the bat, and most were covered in slash marks all over their bodies. The young Sapphire was left partially naked, but it isn't believed that any sort of sexual assault took place. Michael then moved on, this time heading up to Luby Brown Road nearby. This is where he came across the home of Shirley B. Farrell, a 69-year-old woman who wasn't related to him in any way. He entered her home and ended her life as well. On his way out, he took her keys and stole her car. By now, it was April 25th, and this entire spree had been continuing for around 10 days. Michael had killed eight people now, counting James Dunn. You might notice that that kill count is one person short. Well, that's because his grandmother, Mary, miraculously survived the assault, being left badly injured in the home for the time being. One day later, the 26th, Michael showed up at the home of his uncle, noticeably acting very strange. He was wearing what his uncle described as girl shoes. Michael asked if he could borrow some shoes from his cousin. Changing into the borrowed shoes and leaving the girl shoes behind, he left his uncle and his cousin very perplexed. On this very day, a state probation officer was on his way to visit Michael in order to arrest him on yet another probation violation. Little did he know, he was just a little too late to have prevented all of this. The next day, on April 27th, another member of Michael's family went out to Michael's home to check on his family, not having heard from them in days, only to stumble upon the grisly scene. This family member immediately called 911, alerting the local police. The police arrived that Saturday evening and came to witness the horror for themselves. At this first home, the police came across Marcia's body on the living room couch, her oxygen machine still running nearby. Sapphire's half-exposed body was found nearly completely shoved under the sofa, only her foot sticking out for the police to find. They more quickly noticed a serrated knife lying near her. Looking to the right, they found two more bodies intertwined on the floor, blocking the bedroom door. These were the bodies of Charles Hosale and Rachel McLaughlin P. In the bedroom, though, they came across Michael's grandmother, Mary Hosale, badly injured but somehow still clinging to life in the end. They picked her up and rushed her out to the hospital. On the way out, the authorities asked her what had happened. She told them she couldn't remember a thing. This investigation led the police down to the home on Luby Brown Road, less than a mile away. There, they came across the body of Shirley Farrell, seeing that she had also died from blunt force injuries to the head and face. They quickly came to the conclusion that this murder was connected to the others. Unlike the others, though, they noted that her arm had been broken, as if it had turned a full 360 degrees in place. They then noticed that her car was missing. That car was later found in a creek bed about a mile away, having been abandoned. The police and the community were baffled at what they were seeing. In the immediate aftermath of the discoveries, they didn't know who could be the culprit. Local law enforcement officers said that the crime spree was among the most horrific in the history of the state. The investigation director, David Rausch, said, The complexity of it explains why there are more questions than answers. We are certainly going to take our time. 
The two remaining bodies weren't found until one day later, due to the need to slowly process the entire crime scene as carefully as possible from the entrance of the home moving inwards. The rifle Michael had previously stolen from James Dunn Jr. was found at the scene, connecting that crime as well. Once the whole scene was processed, the police reached out to the remaining family of the victims, who were understandably horrified at what they heard. Michael Cummins had already fled from the area near the family home by the time officers were on the scene. His absence led the police to quickly question as to whether he was a victim himself or if he might have been involved somehow. The police were well aware of his history and labeled him as a person of interest from the very beginning. Michael then showed up before his surviving uncle. He was wearing a bloodstained shirt. He told his uncle that the stains were from chocolate, to which his uncle responded, No it ain't, that's dry blood. Michael then left the scene. To this day, Michael's uncle regrets not killing him then and there on the spot. Late that Saturday night, the police finally tracked Michael down after he was spotted near a creek bed. A helicopter, along with several officers, were sent out to the scene. Michael, wielding an axe, began to move threateningly toward the police. As a result, they shot him in the legs. He quickly went from a person of interest to their main suspect. Michael was sent out to the TriStar Skyline Medical Center in order to undergo surgery to treat his wounded leg. He was kept there under tight surveillance. Once the surgery was finished, he was, of course, charged and arrested. He was then booked into the Sumner County Jail. Shortly after, he was sent to the Tennessee Department of Corrections Special Needs Unit. By April 29th, all of the victims of Michael's crime spree had been identified. Neighbors were telling the news media that, while they were in shock and horrified at what had happened, they weren't surprised that Michael was behind all of this. He was known within the community for being unhinged and dangerous. The remaining Cummins family stayed fairly quiet about the whole thing, understandably still in shock. Sumner County police officers and public officials said that they had never seen anything like this in their county before. The Sumner County District Attorney General Ray Whitley said that this case was easily the most horrific that he had ever encountered. We will see that justice is done, he said. By May, Michael Cummins had appeared in court, facing the remaining family members that he hadn't massacred for the first time. He decided to plead not guilty after a number of hearings took place. Due to lockdown, the trial would come to be delayed time and time again. While this was happening, the only survivor of the massacre, Michael's grandmother, passed away due to complications from her injuries in 2022. The judge questioned whether or not Michael was even fit to stand trial due to his history of mental illness, but after some review, he was found fit to stand trial later that year. This year, in January of 2023, the judge ruled that the prosecutors can seek the death penalty for Michael. This was, after all, one of the deadliest mass murders in the history of Tennessee. If anything called for a death penalty, it would be this. Officially, he was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, one count of criminal homicide, one count of attempt to commit first-degree murder, and one count of theft. Michael's lawyer tried to block the decision, citing his poor mental health. After both sides called forth their own psychologist to review the case, the judge took some time to deliberate on the decision. After nine days, Judge D. David Gay said, the burden of proof was not met by the defense that Cummins had a mental disability which would prevent the state from seeking the death penalty. The trial against Michael Cummins is set to commence on January 18th of 2024. It will likely continue on through February. The state is still planning to seek a death penalty. When it comes to more details, we'll likely be in the dark for a while now as the judge has issued a gag order on this case. 
This case is considered to be the worst crime in Tennessee in over 20 years, and overall one of the most horrific the state has ever seen. Once again, this has been your host, Kyle. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast episode. Feel free to look through my huge library of other stories if you found this one interesting, and be sure to be there for the next stories that come out each and every week. Have a good night.